reading Philippians 1, starting at verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be back and to see your uh, beautiful faces. Um, so before... Uh, sorry, let's see. Okay, me and technology are not the best of friends. That's working now. Uh, if you could have your Bibles open in front of you, I think that would be really handy because uh, we're going to be looking at our text uh, quite a lot this morning. Uh, but before we come uh, to this uh, wonderful uh, letter written to the Philippians and by implication written to all Christians, uh, let's come to our Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Uh, Father God, we are indeed so thankful that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are holy, that you are mighty. And today, Father, we are on, not under the illusion that you have not sovereignly brought us together by your kindness and in your grace. And so we ask as we come around the words of eternal life that by your sovereign spirit that you would awaken our hearts, open our hearts to the words uh, that we are going to hear this morning. And please lead and guide us to ever greater truths, but also change us so that we would be uh, the light and the salt of this world. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so for now, um, now for us to really understand uh, what's being said here in our text, uh, we might cast our minds back to when Craig uh, took us through the first two verses of this letter. Now, I'm glad what he, uh, how he approached last week's sermon in that he took you all the way back to how the Philippian church came to be, uh, drawing on Acts 16. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this this morning because you can podcast that wonderful sermon. Uh, you can find the link to that on our website. And if you missed it, might I say it's one of the best setups for a series that we could possibly have hoped for. Uh, but a, a bit of a recap might be helpful uh, for those of you haven't, who haven't heard it yet. Philippi was and still is in Macedonia. However, in the time of Paul, it was a deeply Roman-thinking and acting city, even being known as small Rome in the ancient world due to its Latin-influenced art and architecture. 
Uh, and interestingly enough, it was the first European church planted by Paul under the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's what we saw last week. Paul was wanting to go further east in his second missionary journey, uh, but in the middle of the night, he had a vision uh, of a man pleading for him to come over to Macedonia. And so Paul and his missionary companions did exactly that. Uh, But what's fascinating is that when they got to the city of Philippi, Uh, there wasn't enough Jewish men in the city to make up a synagogue, which you needed about uh, nine guys, which was where Paul would usually go and look for potential converts. And so they uh, headed out to a nearby river and found a woman's prayer group where Lydia, uh, a rich businesswoman, was converted and baptised along with her household. And then we're told through Acts 16, over the course of uh, a bit of time, that a fortune teller and a prison guard were converted as well. A a pretty eclectic mix of people, to say the least. But what I think is beautifully brought out in the first few words of this letter, the letter to the Philippians is that even though the first converts in Philippi were a motley crew of assorted people from all walks of life and different economic circumstances, by the time Paul had written this letter to them from a Roman prison about 10 years later, they'd grown together to become a fully functional church with elders and deacons serving and leading the people. We see that in verse 1. Now just one other thing to mention and that's this letter that um, this letter was written and received in the context of persecution. Uh, Now I say written in persecution because as mentioned Paul was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel which wasn't anything new as we know from looking at Acts 16 that he was also thrown into prison in Philippi for disturbing the peace, as the Philippians weren't too keen uh, on his practices and message. And it seems by looking at the whole letter to the Philippians um, that they weren't too keen on this church either. In putting all the evidence together, it seems that to turn to Christianity was perceived to be turning from being Philippian, from being a good Roman citizen, if you will. So both writer and receiver were being oppressed for living and sharing the gospel. And so this is the context uh, that we have. And it's good to keep in mind as we work our way through our text this morning and this entire series. This was a church planted by the Apostle Paul about 10 years prior to this letter being written, with its founding members being a an incredibly eclectic mix of people from different socio-economic backgrounds, and with that, uh, probably incredibly different characters as well. However, God was faithful and built his church over the years to the point that they had ordained pastors and deacons who were looking after them, and they were even able to fund Paul's missionary uh, efforts in other parts of Europe. Yet in the midst of it all, in the midst of this wonderful gospel growth and faithfulness, 
they were also being persecuted externally by their own people in their own city for what they had become and what they were doing. So what did their friend and the apostle want to say to them in the midst of all of this? Well, this brings us to our text this morning, uh, which we're going to open up. So if you have uh, your Bibles in front of you, would you please look with me at verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. So first, Paul wants to let them know that he is so thankful to God every time he thinks about them. In other words, when Paul thinks of these people, he's filled with appreciation and affection that he thanks God for. I mean, how beautiful is that? You may have uh, certain memories in your life that you uh, look back on with great fondness, like a group of friends at school, uh, maybe some work colleagues, uh, or people you may have gone on a trip with. But remember the context of how this church was founded. Paul, well, he had the city turn on him and throw him into prison, and they put him in chains. Now, as we'll see throughout this series, he has a lot more interaction uh, with the Philippian church than just that event. Yet when he thinks about these people and his interaction with them, he's so thankful to God for knowing and coming into contact with all of them. Thanking God every time they come to mind. And dear brothers and sisters, this is such a beautiful picture of what we all have in Christ. I was talking uh, to someone from our congregation just this week and they were reflecting on their time away and though they didn't have a terrible time, uh, they ended our conversation by saying uh, they couldn't wait to come home and see their church family. And I get that as Haley and I have been away as well and though we had an opportunity to worship with the church in Margaret River, uh, we desperately missed our church family here in Armidale. Maybe you have your own experience of that as well. And, and we can say that because there's an incredible bond that unites all of us, not just in this room and not just with the church in Australia, but also throughout the world. However, being part of the local church, plugging in, serving and getting involved in the lives of your spiritual brothers and sisters with your God-given gifts, well, it's so incredibly beneficial on so many different levels. And we rob ourselves when we withdraw from Christian fellowship and church life. It's a good and beautiful thing to have such affection towards your church family. And though this is good and, and true and, and right, I, I want you to notice what Paul does with all of this. I, I want you to see what, what the result is with the warm and fuzzy feelings that he has towards these people. Well, he takes them to the throne of grace. It's right there in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. 
See what Paul does when these people come to mind? He, he doesn't just say, wow, I, I really miss those guys. I, I wonder how they're going. I, I hope they're doing well. No, every time he thinks of them, every time he's reminded of them, it's fuel for the prayer closet, so to speak. In other words, Paul sees his being reminded of the Philippian church as a prompting to go to God and thank him and pray for his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we're going to see the details of that prayer in verses 9 through to 11. But remember the context. Paul was in prison here. He was suffering for the sake of the gospel. Yet what is he saying? Well, in the midst of his own trial, he doesn't make the subject of his prayers just himself, but uses what comes to mind to be thankful to God. To put it simply, Paul never loses sight for praying for others, no matter the circumstances. And that is a beautiful example set for the church. When, when Paul remembers his brothers and sisters in the Lord, when he remembers this beautiful church, these dearly beloved people, even when he might be in the worst possible situation himself, he takes these precious people to God in prayer with thankfulness. And let me just say there is a, a mutual benefit in what Paul is modelling for the church here. I've had brothers and sisters tell me that when they've gone through horrendous real trials, either with health, their finances, uh, some sort of tragedy, that they have found that in the midst of all of that, that they have found praying for others like medicine for the soul. In that not only was their uh, gaze diverted from their own problems and situations, though important and still to be prayed for, but they felt like they were able to use that time of desperation to not just pray about themselves, but to, to really get in the prayer closet and intercede for others as well. Like I said, there, there's a real benefit in getting involved in the lives of your spiritual brothers and sisters with your God-given gifts. But sometimes, admittedly, um, it's not so clear what those gifts might be or how we can use them with the season we find ourselves in. But all of us, no matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself, well, we can always be praying for the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, notice this. Paul isn't saying that he's like, oh, no, I've got to pray for these guys again. No, he says he prays with joy. He prays with joy. Now, I have to admit, this doesn't sound like a guy who's in prison. I mean, he sounds more like a guy who's having a great run of things. He sounds so happy. But this is the thing. His joy, this feeling of exuberance, well, for him to be this way, it must be because his joy isn't rooted in his external circumstances. Is the door okay? Yep. Now, you might be sitting there this morning and thinking, well, well that's great for Paul. 
I mean, he had a vision of Jesus and he was an apostle. Of course he's going to be on cloud nine the whole time because he knew that he was loved and special to God. However, to that I would say two things. First, Paul isn't more saved or more loved of God than you and I in this very room. He makes that clear to the church in verse 7 when he says, all of you share in God's grace with me. And we'll have a look at what that means in just a moment. But second, I would say Paul has this great joy because his joy isn't coming from himself or his circumstances. But it's squarely rooted in the work of God in his own life and the life of others. And that is the key to everything that's going on here. Allow me to explain what I mean. Now we know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And it's a work that comes from the grace of God in you and me. And this letter is going to take us back to that theme of joy over and over and over again in this series. But for now, Paul actually defines why his prayers for these people are so infused with this joy that he speaks of. And that's because, he says, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We see that in verses 5 and 6. Do you see what he's saying? Paul's saying his joy is felt in his prayers because his whole focus is on the work of God, on the gospel at work in them all in the life of himself and in his recipients. That's why he has incredible joy in the midst of his imprisonment because the gospel is still at work. Now, I want to make some clarifying comments on that complex bit of theology. And I want you to see clearly what Paul's saying here. First, this partnership as the New International Version puts it in verse 5, simply means that Paul and these Christians have a real fellowship and communion together in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is driving that there. He's saying that because they believed his message when he first came to them, they too have become partakers of God's grace. But I think there's more going on here. And it's this, their partnership in the gospel, well, it drove them to do something with it. It drove them to practically partner with Paul in his call to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, that's part of the reason why he's writing this letter, right? He's thanking them because he helped, they helped him practically in his missionary work even sending him money and helpers because they, both Paul and the church at Philippi, wanted the same thing. And that was to see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. They had the same goal. They partnered in it. 
And so when Paul thinks about these precious people, he has so much joy because he thinks about that fellowship that they have in the gospel and in their common mission to spread the gospel to all those around them. But there's more. There's more. Second, Paul's joy comes from a confident hope about the future. That's what he's talking about there in verse 6. When he says, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Well, basically, he's saying this. He can pray with great joy every time he remembers these people because their salvation, their perseverance, their assurance of everlasting life doesn't come from any work of man, but from the good work that God has, is, and will do in them until the Lord Jesus returns. That's the common grace of verse 7, that Paul, uh, these Philippians, and in fact, you and me in this very room share. It's, It's by the grace of God alone that anyone comes to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. It's by the grace of God alone that anyone has their hearts opened so that they can believe the gospel and throw themselves on the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a thing that Paul brings out here. His joy not only comes from their same partaking in the gospel, but also in knowing that what God has started in them, and by implication any Christian, he will complete. In other words, Paul reassures all Christians that they will be preserved to the end and will never fall from grace because salvation isn't a matter of our working for God's acceptance, but God's working for us and in us so that we are already accepted by him. Isn't that amazing news? Amazing news. Dear brothers and sisters, let me say it like this. None of us can work our way into earning God's favour. Nor can any of us, through our own work, maintain God's ongoing favour. That's because God's standard is holy perfection. And so God did the work for his people in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that Paul preaches and takes great joy in. The gospel that he won't compromise on, hence why he's being persecuted. The the gospel that the Philippian church won't compromise on, hence why they're being persecuted. The, The gospel that Grace Christian Church won't compromise on. And the rest is up to our sovereign God. The grace of God, Paul says, he has so much joy. It's been at work in the hearts and minds of these people which had been graciously opened to the gospel so that they could see their sin and thus they threw themselves on Christ and then God graciously applied the work of the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit on these people. And Paul knew that God was never going to let them go. Church, salvation isn't a human achievement. It's something that's accomplished by the work of God alone. 
And, and this free gift was applied to our lives by what theologians call the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And for Paul, for the Philippians, for you and me, the good news in all of this is that from the beginning to the end, salvation is entirely a work of divine grace. Dear one, if you have seen the gospel, if God has caused you to be born again, then you can be assured that he will complete his work in you. For all of us who have seen our sin for what it is and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you can be as certain of heaven as though you were already there because it's God's work. That's the joy of our salvation. And we can pray in any circumstance with great joy because it's God who is at work. And because of the cross, because of that moment in history, we know that we have a God who finishes what he starts. It's like the Philippian jailer who asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Well, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Might I ask of you this morning, have you called upon the name of the Lord? Well, Paul is so thankful that what God had began He will complete in these dear brothers and sisters that he had in Philippi. And thankful that they all partake in the work of the gospel in their lives. That's that's why he has so much joy, but also so much love in his heart for these dear people, for his dear spiritual brothers and sisters, as we see here in verses 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The King James says in the bowels of the Lord, it's like he loves them so much, his guts, they turn. What a beautiful picture of friendship and relationship that we all have in Christ in the church. It's a beautiful love letter from Paul to these special people, from a man who's invested so much into their lives, so much time before the throne of grace on their behalf. But it's here that Paul actually shifts. He shifts from telling them how much he loves them and the hope that they have to now telling them the details of what he prays for them. Look with me at verses 9 through to 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, we could spend an entire sermon uh, just looking at Paul's prayer, uh, but for the sake of time, I've broken it down into three uh, easy things for you note-takers out there, and we're going to move through them relatively quickly. If you have any questions, then please come and see me after the service. Uh, So the first thing, first of all, Paul prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That's what we see in verse 9. 
Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you'll notice that Paul doesn't specify the object in which their love should be growing on. But, but let's have a think about the immediate context here. Paul has just been telling them how much love that he has for them and that this love comes from a great joyous knowledge that they're all partakers of the same grace of God revealed in and by the gospel. And so I think it would be fair to understand that this love that he's talking about here is about growing in love for one another in the church. So his very first prayer for them is that they will grow in love more and more with each other. But I want to say this. I want to say something else. Love for fellow believers, well, it grows as a fruit of a deepening love for God. We see it right here in the very same verse with the language around knowledge and insight. I I mean, as Paul reflects on the work of the gospel in his chains for these fellow believers, his affections for these people, well, they grow all the more, which means a deepening love for others is always the result of a deeper knowledge and insight of the gospel. Let me say it like this, where there is true knowledge of Christ, where there's an apprehension of the grace of God towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will always be love towards others, always. The Apostle John, he puts it like this, we love because he first loved us. And as we see in the gospel, Jesus repeatedly affirmed to his disciples that no one can say that they love God who doesn't have love for brother or sister. And so love is a result, if you will, of the true knowledge of God, of the experience of his grace, of the experience of his love. Church, if you have really come to know God's radical life, transforming transforming love, you will manifest something of that love in your life towards others in your relationships. It's the overflow. And so the Apostle Paul's first prayer for the Philippians, and by implication for you and me, would be that we abound in love as we know the truth of the gospel, as we know our Lord and Saviour, as we know our Creator more and more. However, I want to be clear here. This doesn't mean that love trumps knowledge. Not in any way. In fact, just the opposite. What Paul is bringing out here is that the more we know the truth and understand God through the gospel, the more we'll be able to love others. The two aren't mutually exclusive. This isn't Paul saying just go with your gut and love people in any which way because love is love kind of thing. No, he's saying that as you grow in the knowledge and insight of God, that the overflow of that will have to be an authentic, selfless, biblical love. That's the kind of love that can really meet the needs of other people. To put it simply, Paul isn't praying that the Philippians would become smarter. He's praying that they would become wiser, in their love and care for one another. 
He prays that their spiritual insight would cause them to know how to best love others in a godly manner. Second, Paul wants them to have this knowledge and insight so they might be able to better discern what it is best. And we see that uh, in verse 10. I've heard it said like this, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And I think that's exactly what Paul is praying for, for these people to have here. Wisdom and being able uh, to differentiate between all the options on the table and apply knowledge and insight that they have to whatever situation uh, that might be at hand. It is a matter of fact that every single spirit-filled community on the face of the planet has a plethora of things that they have to deal with if they are gospel-centric. If a church is doing its job right, there is a spiritual enemy out there in the world that doesn't leave those churches to just go about being the light and the salt of the world, winning people for Christ. And we know that the schemes of the enemy will come in various forms and ways to try and stop that work from happening. As we'll see with the Philippian church, they had it externally from persecution. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, they had some things going on internally with something that threatened to rip the church apart and mar their witness to the world. Let me say this. Not everything that happens in and around the church is because there's a so-called devil hiding behind the bush. No, we, we live in a fallen world with people who are dealing with all sorts of pressures and problems, dealing with personality clashes, false persuasions and pestilences. No, the key of, to all of this isn't to say the devil made them do it. The devil made me do it. But nor is it to say there is no spiritual force at play at all. No, the key is that we know the truth and as we have a greater insight into the knowledge of God, then we'll be able to proceed with wisdom and discernment, choosing those things that are best, choosing those things which cause the love of God, the gospel, to be exalted among his people. So that as Paul says here, we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we have a greater knowledge and insight into the word of God, if we grow in our love for one another, then corporately and individually, we will grow in wisdom and discernment so that um, we might choose what's best what's most beneficial and what will glorify God the most, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. And we all have access to that by the grace of God in the gospel, a life of sincerity and integrity, not just in public view, but in private as well, a life where we will seek to honour God in all that we do. Third, Paul prays that these dear Christians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is our last point, and it goes back to that central understanding of Paul's great joy for these people and for you and me who have put our trust in Jesus in this room this morning. 
And it's that all this love, knowledge, insight, discernment, purity, and, and fruit as he talks about here, well, it doesn't come about all by our feeble efforts. None of this should be understood as Paul saying, just try harder. But this doesn't come about by ourselves, nor, sorry, no, it comes by what Paul says clearly here. It comes through Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 11. That is the hope of the gospel. The supernatural fruit, the supernatural life of Christ, the pure and blameless life before God can only be lived out by believers because there has been first a supernatural work in us by the grace of God through the gospel. Paul Paul makes this clear to the church in Galatia by saying, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled by this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5. So as we finish our time in this incredible text this morning, you might see that we are getting a glimpse of Paul's heart for these people, which we're going to dig into more and more through the weeks. But I want to end on saying this. Paul concludes this opening section of his letter by expressing his greatest desire for the lives of these people. You see, he wants all of this for these people so much so that he goes to the throne room of grace every time he remembers them to intercede for them and prays for them so that they will grow more and more and more in their love for one another. And as they grow, that their lives would rise to the highest possible point and that's that they would live in such a way that their lives would give glory to God verse 11. Give glory and praise to God. And isn't that the goal of every single Christian in this world? To live in such a way that we give glory and praise to God in the way that we live. Well, church, might I say a church that's growing in love for God and others will bring glory and praise to God. You see, God alone is worthy of all praise and honor. He alone is is worthy of all glory and we should never show the world by the way that we live that we are not about promoting that glory. Now you might be thinking to yourself, that's an impossible standard, Michael. What a high and impossible calling for the church. Well, to that I would say, yes, in our own feeble efforts and and earthly wisdom, it will be impossible. It will be. But this is the thing. We're, We're not left alone in any of this. 
That's why we don't see Paul writing this letter saying that I, I just love you so much. I miss you so much. Thank you for sending that guy to me. No, he writes to them to tell them that even though they have God, and more importantly, as we've seen in our text this morning, that God has them, that he's praying for them. He's praying for them, and that is key. Christians must pray for one another. And so by way of application, dear ones, let me just say that if Paul saw the great need to be praying for these wonderful people, for all intents and purposes who were a growing and obedient church, surely we here in Armadale need to be praying prayers like we have seen this morning for one another that we would abound in love and grow in knowledge and increase in discernment and choose what's excellent and continue in integrity and sincerity and to live in fruitful righteousness all for the glory of God. So can I encourage you this morning? Can I encourage you, my dear brothers and sisters, this week take some time to grab this passage, reflect on what we have looked at this morning, and pray for your brothers and sisters in the faith. It, it might not need to be here in Armadale. It, it could be uh, the wider body. It could be for those in other countries. But might I encourage you as you go into your week, don't just brush aside thoughts and feelings of those who pop into your head. But take some time to pray for those people. Intercede for them. Like I said, there is real benefit in getting involved in the lives of your spiritual brothers and sisters in the local church. And all of us, no matter who you are, well, you can pray for others in whatever situation you find yourselves in. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words from Paul. And we thank you that they are so encouraging, that you are the one who is doing the work in us, that you are causing us to respond in obedience, in faithfulness, in wanting to follow you, that by your spirit you have done an incredible awakening, a regenerating, a circumcising of the heart, a giving of a heart of flesh and not of stone, all because of your totally undeserved favor. And so I ask, Lord God, that this week, as all of us go into this week and we have various people pop into our minds for all sorts of situations, maybe not even uh, we have joyous memories of these people. Father, would you please help us to pray? Would you help us to be faithful in the prayer room? Father, would you help us to see the benefits of interceding and loving your church and serving in this way. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.